Morning, welcome. Okay, two things are about to happen. Two things are about to happen. One is if you have a Bible, you're going to find Luke chapter 6. And one of the most incredible scenes, I think, in all of Scripture. If you're too lazy for that, didn't bring a Bible, don't have one, don't even know what that is, that's all good. We're going to put it up on the screen. The second thing that's going to happen is that First Impressions are going to hand out a card and a pen to you, okay? And as they do, because that's what we're heading this morning, we're going to do some writing. Everyone write? Ah, don't worry. We're going to hand out a pen and a card, and that's where we're heading this morning. We're going to land in that, and I want you to have a pen and a little card handy when we are done. If you're finding Luke chapter 6, you're finding, as I say, one of the most incredible scenes in all of Scripture. It's like the full expression of the surrounding area are gathering around Jesus and standing in awe. They're seeing glimpses of the kingdom of God, like what happens when, when situations and sicknesses and people's very lives come under the rule and the power of Jesus Christ. And people are watching this stuff and they're standing in awe. And nobody really cares where anybody's from. You've got people who are just like Jesus and people completely di- unlike Jesus. You've got people who are like, who've been faithful to God for generations. And you've got people who have no concept of God and and they're all standing in awe of Jesus. And I get excited over this sort of passage because I think, what would it look like if, if our church gatherings looked more like this? You know, where the full expression of humanity begins to gather together because the, 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 the view of Jesus that we have is so compelling that we stand in awe of who he is and what he does. But the thing is, this scene in Luke chapter 6 happens um, just after Jesus has out of his big group of disciples, chosen 12 guys who were going to be his messengers. And on this hillside, on this mountainside, we're seeing glimpses of the kingdom of God. And these 12 guys are going to be ambassadors. They're going to announce this good news. And it seems to me that that commission, the announcement of the good news of Jesus, is something that is upon us. And as Jesus in this scene turns to these 12 and he says, I want to begin to talk to you about the lives that you live. I want to begin to talk to you about your priorities and your pursuits because I wanted you to live in such a countercultural way. I don't want people just to discover about this kingdom from what you say. I want them to see it in the distinctiveness with which you live. I think the same call is upon us. That as we think about sharing Jesus, as we think about people in these suburbs, hearing, discovering, having the opportunity to grow as a follower of Jesus, as we think about people having that opportunity, I think it's particularly incumbent on us in this generation that people don't just hear words, but they see a distinctiveness in the way we live. So last week we talked about the importance of Jesus being able to redefine success for us, turning on its head the way we have seen success in our culture. Today we get to hear about how Jesus redefines completely, turns on its head our concept of love. And so with that in mind, I want you to read with me these words from verse 27 of chapter 6. Jesus is talking, he says, but to you who are listening, he's talking to his disciples, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others. As you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? 
Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Heavenly Father is merciful. Should we pray? Father, we want to thank you so much that every single week we gather and our desire is to grow as followers of Jesus, to, to not, just, not just know about you, but to discover you, to, to follow you, to become like you. Lord God, we commit this time to you. And I thank you that just as in this scene, the people who are not followers of Jesus, they get to sort of listen in. And I thank you that no matter where we are on a sort of spiritual spectrum this morning, I thank you that we all get to listen in. And I pray, Lord God, where people don't believe in you, Lord God, that they might see you afresh today. Lord, we give ourselves to you right now. We're listening. We're leaning in. Would you teach us? Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Would you make us more like Jesus in your wonderful name? If you agree with any of that, why don't you give me a big amen? amen. So good. Love is one of those words that every single one of us gets, right? Every single one of us has heard that word at some point in our life. It's like we have painted a picture of love. We, 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 we have a working definition of it. You know, for many of us that comes through popular culture. We, you know, some of you love romantic novels, right? Some of you love a good rom-com. You know, I'm more action, but there's usually a love scene in there. You know, even guys, many of us love the old Jack Reacher books. Always a love interest in there, okay? Always a love interest. Love comes at us through popular culture. Love, our definition of love maybe comes because of somebody who told you they loved you. Maybe your definition of love comes out of not just what they said, but maybe how they then acted. Maybe your definition of love is shaped by your desire to have someone say that to you. Or to have someone that you could say that to. Every single one of us has a working definition of love. A picture we have painted. When Jesus uses the word love here, he's probably speaking in Aramaic. And Luke, Dr. Luke, who, who's investigated Jesus and recorded this sermon, has, has translated it into Greek. And the New Testament writers, they, they began to use this word. When, when love was described, they began to use this word. It was a colorless word. You don't really find it much in Greek literature outside of the Bible. It's, it, and when, it, when, it, when it's used there, it's, it's colorless and it's dull and, it, and it's lifeless. And, and it's sometimes interchangeable with other words they use for love. And so it's like, it's like ripe to be redefined. And, and, and Luke and, and other New Testament writers, they pick this word agape and they begin to associate it with Jesus' teaching and Jesus' ways and Jesus' methodology. And so this word becomes synonymous with Jesus. If you want to know what agape means, you have to look at Jesus. If you, understand, if you want to understand what it looks like, if you want to understand how it plays out into everyday life, you can't just look in sort of wider literature. You have to look at the life of Jesus. And, and so inevitably, as you watch Jesus and you listen to Jesus, suddenly this lifeless, dull word agape suddenly begins to take life, suddenly begins to, to, to take on color and meaning and beauty and 
You know, when Jesus talks about love here, it's like he rips up the old canvas. He begins to tear up the the pictures that you and I have painted of love. And he begins to paint a love masterpiece. And that's what I want you to see today. If you look at at verse uh, 32, it says this, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Here Jesus begins to tear up our picture of love. He begins to tear up the, the concept of love people have. He says, even sinners love like that. If you, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And, and so Jesus sort of begins to tear up that, that, their working definition of love. Sinners for them were, were people who didn't obey the law. And Jesus is like, Jesus is like even people who have no concept of God, even people who, who, who God hasn't revealed his ways to, even they get this idea that you should love those who love you. You know, it's this concept of social reciprocity, right? That, 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 that each of us has this sort of deep urge inside us that when somebody is kind to us, we should be kind to them. When somebody loves us, we should love them. When somebody is good to us, we should be good to them. I've been reading a book recently on, uh, on FBI hostage negotiation, just for something out of left field for you, right? And, and, and it's talking about how they negotiate with people who have kidnapped aid workers, you know, kidnapped people because they want to make money out of a ransom. Uh, that maybe, maybe, they've, maybe they've planted bombs somewhere and that's, where they're ne- that's who they're negotiating with. We're talking like sort of the lowest of the low, right? And what the FBI discovered is when they negotiate with these sorts of terrorists, with these sorts of kidnappers, they discovered that if they, if they gave the concept that they were giving something to these hostage takers, these kidnappers, that they would feel obliged to give up information, that they would feel obliged to give something up. The FBI discovered that even kidnappers get social reciprocity. Even they feel obliged to love people who love them, to do good to people who are good to them, to give when they're given to. Jesus is like, that is in our culture That sort of definition of love, love when it suits you, be good to people who are good to you, and don't worry about anybody else. And if that is our canvas of love, Jesus tears it up. He says, I'm not talking about social reciprocity. I'm talking about something different. Go back to verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Just let that sink in for a moment. Jesus really is saying, love your enemies. On this blank canvas, having ripped up our old definition, he begins to paint the outline of this new form, this new concept of love that he wants to get us to understand. And the context began last week when Jesus says, if you are going to associate yourself with being a follower of Jesus, people are going to hate you, people are going to exclude you, people are going to insult you, and people are going to reject your name as evil. That is part and parcel of you following Jesus. And it's, that is the context of Jesus now turning around and saying, if that is inevitable, I want to teach you what you need to do when that happens. I want to teach you how you're going to respond in those sorts of situations. And here's what I want you to know. Love your enemies. When somebody acts towards you with hostility, here's how I want you to respond. I want you to welcome them and to entertain them as if they're honored guests. This is staggering. 
And then he goes on and it's like he begins to add more detail to this sketch outline because love your enemies is then sort of described in three different ways. It says do good to those who hate you. Notice something here. It says do good to those who hate you. Don't just have kind thoughts about them. Do good. Let it be practical. Let it be seen. Let it be obvious. And this isn't just some sort of random acts of kindness thing. This is do something practically good to the very perpetrators, to the very people who have insulted you. Go and do something good to them, for them. Like this is outrageous. He goes on and he says another way of explaining you love your enemies. Not only only do good to those who, who hate you, but bless those who curse you. This word bless comes from the same place in Greek that we get our word eulogy. And it reminded me of this uh, quote from Garrison Keillor. It says this, They say such nice things about people at their funeral that it makes me sad that I'm going to miss mine by just a few days. (laughs) I love that quote. And everyone knows what a eulogy is, right? Many of us have been to funerals where somebody stands up and they give the eulogy. They give this speech. And what do they include? They spend time in their preparation of this eulogy thinking of all the great things about that person. All the lovely attributes, all the awesome things they did and all the awesome things that they accomplished. And what they leave out is all the bad stuff. They leave out the anger. They leave the things that annoyed us about them. They leave all of that out and they just talk about the good stuff. That's what a eulogy is. And all of us sitting there know the truth. But what we're hearing is the good stuff. And it seems to me that in life we often do the opposite. We spend our whole lives pointing out the bad in people and looking for the things that they, where they don't match up and looking for the things where they don't quite come up to the standard that we will want them. And we, spend, and we ignore all the good stuff. And we wait till somebody dies to ignore the bad stuff and tell them all the good stuff. And I think what Jesus is saying here is I want you to flip it. When people, when people curse you, when people want ill of you, When people hope bad things for your life, why don't you turn around and write a eulogy? Why don't you take the time to think about all of the good things about them and ignore the bad things and then communicate that and think about that and focus on that? You know, I think marriages need to hear this. I'm not just talking about enemies. I'm talking about, you know, we don't do this with enemies. I don't know that we do this with our friends. I don't know that we do this in our marriages. I don't know that we do this in our parenting. I don't know that we do this in our workplaces, even with our best qualities. When you think about the things you've said to other people this week, how much of it was was like a thoughtful pointing out of all the awesome things you know about them? How much of our thought life is occupied by 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 the areas where people just don't add up, where they've missed the mark? The things that annoy us about them. This challenges me in marriage. It challenges me with my kids. How much time do I spend pointing out all the things they get wrong? How much of my thought life goes towards saying the things that I think are awesome about them? The things I love about them? I fear we spend our lives writing a reverse eulogy and wait till they die to, get, to tell them all the things that are awesome about them when they don't get to hear it. And Jesus takes that and he says, learn to do it with those close to you. Learn to do it with your friends and then take those people who curse you and write a eulogy about them. If we were sat comfortably at the start of today, 
I fear that we're sitting rather uncomfortably now. I know I am. I know I've been feeling uncomfortable about this this week. And then he says, pray for those who mistreat you. I got up early yesterday morning and I'm driving to the market and there's cars parked one side of the road and, and so I'm on the right side of the road, it's my side of the road and this car comes down the other way and we're like face to face and we stop and I'm like, it's easier for her to back up but she's not moving and so I'm like, okay, I'm going to back up but I thought, you know what, I'm going to back up, it's not very far and then we're going to do that thing, she's going to wave thank you I'm going to wave back, thank you. We're going to smile. We're going to go on along our way, feeling great about life. I backed up and she blanked me. No wave, no smile, no acknowledgement that I'd been the better person, that I'd done the right thing. I tell you, I felt mistreated. Everyone knows you. Wave, wave, smile. Everyone feels good about life. What is it about roads that bring out the worst in us? And Jesus said, I want you to pray for her. I want you to pray for her. And I spent my 15-minute journey to the, to the market in Newtown praying for this lady. And, I, and it made me realize, man, she, has, she is a person made in the image of God. She is a person that God loves very much. She has a history. She has a story. She has uh, hopes and fears. She has ambitions and she has issues. And Jesus loves her so much that he hung on the cross in her place. You see, I think we look at this and when we go, you know, pray for those who mistreat you and we think, well, that's an easy one. I don't know that it is. I think it's the hardest. And the thing is, I think part of that is because we don't realize, we completely underestimate the power of prayer. That when, I, I honestly believe this. We're going to do a series on this over the summer. I honestly believe that, that what Jesus reveals in Scripture is prayer is the most powerful thing of which you and I are capable. And so when he says, take those people who mistreat you, and, and I want you to lift their names before the God of heaven, the one in whose hands is all blessing and all power and all wealth and all wisdom, and I want you to ask God who is generous to pour that out into their life. That suddenly changes how I see those who mistreat us. You know, we as a church right now are being mistreated by an organization that have sent missionaries here to try and steal people away from the church. Can our response be to pray? And I don't just mean like pray, God, would you pour out fire from heaven like I believe you used to do it. Now would be a really great time. I mean, Lord, would you bless them? Lord, would you reveal Jesus to them? Lord, I believe that you're the greatest treasure. Would they discover you and know you? Like, I don't want harm for them. I want good for them. I don't want evil for them. I want holiness for them. I want godliness for them. I want, right, I want, you to, I want them to know how much you love them, Lord. Let our response be to pray for people. You know, I think it's important to see here that Jesus isn't saying what people's behavior, people, Jesus isn't saying people's behavior was right. When God calls you to act in this way, he's not saying, I want you to pretend that everything's okay. I want you to pretend that what they did was right. He's not saying that at all. He's not saying, I want you to be best friends with them. He's not saying, I want you to, you know, you know it's rugby world cups just around the corner. Make sure you invite them over and hang out and you're going to become best buds. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I do want you to take responsibility for how you act here. What they did was not right. 
but I do want you to take ownership of how you now respond. And on those sort of outlines, Jesus then begins to fill in even sort of the major blocks of color in this masterpiece on love. And we come to this, we come to this moment where he begins to talk about case law. He begins to talk about, as if you guys don't get it yet, I want to emphasize it even more. Let me give you some examples. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Like, it's like, I realize you guys are a bit dull. You know, I realize, I realize that you will always underestimate the extent to which I'm calling you to love other people. So let me just spell it out. You know, it's here we get this classic thing, don't we? about turning the other cheek. But I want you to see a couple of things here because I think we missed this. We've made a thing about turning the other cheek. First thing I want you to know is that, is that being slapped in the face was like the highest form of insult. You know, for those of us who go, I've never been slapped in the cheek, so I've never had the opportunity to show somebody I love them so much by turning the other cheek. It's just an example. And in that culture, that was about being insulted. So let's think about now. You may not have been slapped in the face, but have you been insulted? Have you been spoken poorly about? See, suddenly this changes what we're talking about. But I think we need, but it's just an example. And I think what we are supposed to do in our day is say, okay, if those are the examples for those people being slapped in the face and maybe somebody stealing their, stealing their shirt, what are the ways in which people mistreat me? What are the ways in which people insult me? And what are the practical ways in which I can respond? You know, one of the things I love about this is that the teaching of Jesus is known for you need to turn the other cheek. It's known for that is outrageous. Who responds like that? Who lives like that? Who would do that? And my prayer is that people wouldn't just know about the teachings of Jesus in, in, in the fact that they are outrageous at times, but that actually Jesus, that people in our communities would see the outrageous responses that Jesus calls us to make in our daily lives. That we might be known for something as outrageous as that. I was talking to Vaughn this week. Vaughn's not here, I don't think. And he was, he was telling me this story about Parihaka. I've never heard that story. It's outrageous that I never have. And in the 19th century, when, when the crown was trying to seize land for European settlements, uh, the Maori in the, in, in the area plowed the, land, plowed the fields to assert their rights, passively, peacefully, but to assert their rights. And the crown came and arrested the plowman. And then they changed the law so that they could hold these plowmen uh, without trial. And they were, they were sent from Taranaki right the way down to the South Island, to Hokitika and, and Dunedin, I think. And, and then when the crown wanted to, to, to build a road through, through Māori land, they, they knocked down fences. And, and, and so the Māori peacefully came and rebuilt the fences and the crown arrested them too and put them in prison and changed the law again. Just to, just to make sure they could detain them without trial. And these prisons weren't nice places. People there were mistreated. And then there's a change in minister. And so, and so what it means is that these people get to go home from prison. But of course what happens is when, when people are mistreated in prison and then they're not allowed to go home, they then take those stories and mistreat them, mistreat them with them. 
That's the sort of circumstance. And it came about on the 5th of November, 1881, that 1,500 crown troops surround Parihaka and they invade. What's the response? Was it retaliation? Was it resistance? The, the people there baked bread to give to the troops. And the children sang songs and they offered feathers as a peace offering. It's outrageous. It's said that this sort of story, this, this story inspired people like Gandhi, inspired people like Martin Luther King in the way they went around the civil rights movement in, in the States. The thing is, if you respond to insult with insult, nobody remembers that. But when you find your way to bake bread for invading troops, when you find your way to turn the other cheek, people remember you know, that resistance wasn't actually successful. More people just got arrested. It didn't turn the tide. But who are you more inspired by today? Whose response inspires you to live differently? And I want to suggest that if we find our way to turn the other cheek, if we find our way to, to do good to those who hate us, I wonder if it might inspire people. I wonder if it might make people turn, you know, turn and take a second glance and say, who lives like that? Who responds in that way? I think the reason why Jesus gives such outrageous examples here is because he doesn't want us to underestimate what is being said. And in case we miss it, he sums it up in verse 31. He says, do to others as you would have them do to you. When people act towards you in this way, I want you to stand in their shoes for long enough that you consider how you would want to be treated in their shoes. You know, imagine you leave here today and you go outside and there's a kid scratching your car. And it's not just like it was an accident as they brushed past. They meant to do it. And you, you go out and you're like, and you see them do it. <laughs> now you want justice right you want them to get what's coming to them they need to learn a lesson they need to make sure that they never do that again but stand in their shoes for a moment what do they want they want grace they want mercy they want forgiveness they don't want to get what's coming to them they want leniency I'm not talking about what they need. I'm not talking about, I'm not saying that people don't need to learn their lesson sometimes. I'm saying what Jesus calls us to do here is to stand in their shoes and say, what do I want in this moment? And then respond accordingly. See, the color that Jesus begins to put in, in, in that fills out this outline, this portrait, this, this masterpiece on love is that we're to love others as we want to be loved. And then we close with this as Jesus ramps it up even more. But love your enemies, do good to them and let, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be called children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. You notice the way God deals with people who are ungrateful and people who are wicked. He doesn't just find a way to show mercy. He is kind to them. 
You know, it's like take the car scenario. Kevin Harney talks about this in his book, Organic Outreach. You know, in the car scenario, we go, okay, if I put myself in their shoes, okay, I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to, you know, let them get away with it. I'm not going to treat them as their, as their wrongdoing deserves. But the way God deals with us is not just to, to ignore it, not, not just to deal with it. You know, not just to sort of show mercy. It's like God gives them the keys to the car and says, it's now yours. And just in case you, just in case you, you, you might not be able to get very far, let me just fill up the tank, you know, with petrol for you. And now you go. See, God isn't just about mercy. God is about grace. God is about giving us this lavish reward on top. You know, and I know some of you are like, that's really outrageous. Petrol prices at the moment, nobody would give a free tank of petrol away, you know. But it's this activity of God, it's this attitude of God that is most accurately seen in the cross. You know, that when humanity ignored God and rebelled against God, we became enemies of God. We deserved justice. We deserved punishment. We were caught next to the car having keyed it, stone in hand. And Jesus said, there is a price to be paid, but I love you so much. I'm going to pay it on your behalf. I'm going to pay for the price, what you deserve on the cross. I'm going to die in your place so that you might be forgiven, so that your sin might be erased. And then on top of that, he says, let me lavish you with grace. Let me give you my righteousness as if it's your own. Just as if you'd always, not just not got it wrong, but as if you'd always got it right. That is how God has loved us. And so the finishing touches, the highlighting on this masterpiece of love is not just the outline, not just the big blocks of color, but these thing, this thing that really makes it pop, this thing that really makes it sing, this thing that makes it really awesome is that we're not only to love people like we want to be loved, but we're to love others like God has loved us. This masterpiece of love, love your enemies, love people like you want to be loved, love like God has loved you. And so right now, I want you to take that piece of paper. And I want you to take the pen that was given to you. And I'm going to give you a couple of moments right now. And I'm not going to ask the worship team to come up yet. And I'm going to do this too. And I want you to answer this question. Who is God asking you? To love like this. And as we think about people who've mistreated you and done wrong to you, maybe maybe that's it. Maybe maybe you know exactly who it is, and maybe it is as simple as praying for them. But if that's what you're writing now about them, what are you gonna do to make sure that's a consistent thing? What are you gonna do to make sure that's an everyday thing this week? Maybe that didn't come naturally to you. You know, maybe you're like, I'm having to think here. Why not think of somebody you can practice on? I'm not giving you that as a get out of jail, but I'm saying at some point somebody will cross you. If there's nobody that comes to mind right now, write out who it is that God is calling you to love. Who it is is it that you know you need to write a eulogy about? (laughs) Maybe for you it's your husband. Maybe for you it's your friend. Maybe for you it's a work colleague. Who is it that God is calling you to love like this right now? Let me give you a couple of moments.
Shall we pray? In fact, would you stand if you're able? You don't have to. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your grace today. I thank you that this is a come-as-you-are moment. I thank you that you don't, you don't look at us and point out all of the shortcomings and all of the failures and all of the things that we, we never do. In this moment, there's nothing hidden from you. There's nothing that we're learning about ourselves that you don't already know. And in light of all of the baggage... You say, I love you. Lord God, as we grapple with who it is right now that you're calling us to love like you have loved us. Love like we want to be loved. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to actually go through with it. Don't let what we're learning remain here, Lord, but let it work out in business relationships. Let it work out in friendships. Let it work out in school playgrounds and in streets and neighborhoods and with next-door neighbors. And Lord, let it work out in every aspect of our lives. Lord God, we, we acknowledge pretty quickly that we can't do this by ourselves. We thank you for the great enabling of your grace. Your work in our lives from beginning to end is a free gift. And we invite your work into our lives again today. Lord God, it's not some these things that you're calling us to do. We don't want to do them in and of ourselves. But we pray, Lord, here's our heart, change them. Here's our lives, Lord God, make us more like you. And I thank you for anybody in here right now, Lord God, who has never actually come to a place of receiving the love that you have for them for themselves. Lord God, I want to thank you right now that if anybody turns to you, you're faithful to forgive. You're faithful to show your love. You're faithful to give new life and give the hope of eternal life and lavish your grace upon. Thank you, Lord God, that to anybody who turns to you, you're ready to hand the keys to the car. We thank you, Lord God, for your outrageous love and mercy and grace. Right now, if that's you and you say, I've never come to believe in Jesus, you can turn to him right now and say, God, thank you for your great love. Would you forgive my sin? Would you bring me into a relationship with you? And would you help me from this moment on to live all of my life following Jesus, listening to Jesus, and becoming more like Jesus? Father, thank you for anybody praying that prayer right now for the first time. Thank you that you're faithful to forgive. And Father, as we right now take communion, as we begin in worship and we fix our eyes on you, and we find as our inspiration and our source and our motivation in all of this, as we find that in you and who you are, we express our praise and our worship and our adoration to you. And as we do, we take communion. We take these simple symbols, bread and juice, remind us that Jesus hung on the cross in our place. And as Lord, as we take these symbols today and we eat and we drink, we remind ourselves, Lord, thank you for the way that you have demonstrated your love to me, though I was an enemy of you. Lord, would you now help me to love like this? In Jesus' name, amen. As we worship, come, you'll find bread and juice around the room. Let's share communion together. Let's worship.